The South Dakota Stories, Volume 7. My trip to South Dakota was the best summer ever. Now I don't need to go to Mars because I've been to the Badlands. And I caught a bigger walleye than Dad when we went to the Missouri River. Then I rode my bike through these huge rocks called needles. Ooh, I also saw my first herd of bison, even a fuzzy furry baby one. I can't wait to go back and see more. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week, the head of a Georgia treatment center for troubled adolescents abused boys for decades. Why wasn't he stopped? We'll talk about the podcast Camp Hell, Annie Wakey. Then a small town detective struggles with her personal and professional lives as she hunts a killer. We'll review HBO's Mayor of Easttown. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of the These Are Their Stories podcast, my civil union partner, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Also with us is author, private investigator, certified pet detective, and resident cat lady, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello. It is the season for cocktails in the catio again, Rebecca. It's the season for cocktails everywhere, Laura Bricker. It never goes out of season. Finally, our captain of woke cynicism, the author of the City Trilogy, host of the Strange Arrivals podcast, which just debuted season two, and the Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. I'm really enjoying your little UFO uh, action figure that you were parading in front of your camera there, Toby. It's a real UFO. Oh. Yeah. I knew real. it. I knew they were it's real, It's not Toby. a Batman balloon? Did you capture that? Are you are you video capturing this conversation? Yeah. <laughs> why, why did you call me your civil union partner? Well, I hear that in other parts of the world, that is a thing that's becoming illegal, oh. legal for... Um, like like man so pe- woman right. heteronormative couples can do choose civil unions instead of marriages. Right, like in the in the U.S. that was sort of that was the precursor to gay. Marriage, that was the right? bullshit was, precursor to gay marriage. Right, yes. right. But uh, but it at the time it seemed like it made sense because it gave people the ability to have like all those A legal, legal partnership, partners. Yes, and yes. now in different parts of the world. They're kind of doing it where yes. instead of getting married, but yeah, you want those those rights. It's you basically can do that. making the legal union official while taking all the patriarchal bullshit out of the uh, same, out of the opposite sex heteronormative relationships. I think that's what it's about. Well, do you would you like propose to your partner to be, be in a civil union? I think so. Is it, you think it's romantic? I think it could be very romantic if it, if you were somebody you really loved and wanted to spend the rest of your life with. Sure. Oh, that'd be neat. Hang on, I got something. You do. Hello, Rachel Keane. Just to let you know that I've spoken to HR and they're happy for me to bring your tenure appraisal forward. Uh, great news, you've passed. So I wondered if you would be my civil partner. Yeah. Wait John. a minute. We just have a proposal on our podcast. We just did. That's John Walters, our good friend. And he's asking Rachel, would you be my civil partner? Yes. Is that for real? That's for real. We have I a want listener. Some more romance, John. Where's the romance? We John? have a listener who reached out to us. This is fucking romantic, Clara. What are you talking about? He's a huge fan of our show. It is my dream 
that somebody would someday propose to somebody on our podcast. And it happens. All right. Rachel, you have to say yes. No, you don't. HR has already approved the application. <laughs> <laughs> you can go get some dental work done or something. <laughs> <Dental> <laughs> <work>. HR. <laughs> so I guess you got to go to your boss and say, look, I've been with this person for 10 years. We have a child together. Can she get on my fucking plan no, already? Can no, I- they don't. Have, it's, it's Britain. They already have insurance yes. and coverage. Can oh, I yeah. get time off? Can I get time off? When she has a child. There. <laughs> I don't um. know why, but it's so romantic. And I got to say, we a long time ago had somebody that like gave somebody a birthday gift of us like recording something. Yeah. And it was so oh, yeah. exciting. This is the first time anyone's asked to do anything like this in years. And I'm so thrilled. Both John and Rachel are longtime listeners to Crime Writers On. So guys, what's it going to be? Rachel, yes or no? Right. Nope, no pressure. Okay, and what we're going to do is we're going to- I have another question. What? Are we going to be invited to the civil <gasps> oh, union ceremony? Oh, are they going to have a ceremony? If, I think if they're going to have a ceremony, they would just get married, right? They want to just be like, hey. Guys, you don't have to pay for my plane ticket. I am coming. <laughs> if you invite me, I am using some of Toby's podcast ad money. Instead, <laughs> instead of paying it to him, I am putting it on a, a plane ticket, and I am coming to your civil union celebration no matter what form it takes i don't care if it's in a dingy pub around the corner is it officiated by the head of hr is that what goes on <laughs> hr <I think> so. <laughs> HR. <laughs> hr yeah hr says it's fine okay so either by now she is uh crying and hugging john and they are so happy for one another or she's just taking that ear pod out and quietly yeah. left the room throwing into the thames Boop. yeah kind of like <laughs> oh too far, John. Too far. <laughs> so let's all now, we're going to pause for one second so Rachel can turn to John and give her answer. Oh, Mazel tov. Oh, so exciting. Oh, oh, congratulations. Kevin, <laughs> do, you, do you remember when we were together? Yeah. And I knew we at some point we were going to get engaged. Like we had, But like we went to a baseball game and I oh, had this... <laughs> I, as you guys know, I'm not a huge baseball fan. And I suddenly was like grabbed with the douche chill fear that there was going to be some fucking like jumbotron proposal situation (laughs) because we know how much Kevin loves baseball. And I was just sitting there and I was like eating a hot dog and remember thinking like, no, it's not going down today, son. It's not. Luckily, you did no, not do that. That was like someone knows something. Season two, <laughs> the New Year's Eve proposal, where she said yes, and then had to tell him no later, yeah. and then died. Yes, uh, that's how it would have been for you if her you name was Lavoy too. Posed to me on a his name oh was my Lavoy. god jumbotron, yeah, yeah. or you could be like poor Ken and I, and so we had just decided to get married. There was no proposal, but I was still awaiting my ring, even though we had booked the ceremony, <laughs> and so we went out to In dinner. In other words, Laura decided they were going to get married. Yeah, so we went out to dinner on Valentine's Day, and I was like, this is it, because the wedding's in like less than a month. This is going to be where the ring comes, and we're having this lovely dinner, and the dinner ends, we're getting up to leave the restaurant, and I go, isn't there something you want to like give me? And he just takes this ring out of his coat and like throws it at me, and he says, fine, you ruined it now. (laughs) Sounds pretty much on brand. Classic. That's awesome. that was that, yeah. Man, how did you propose, Toby? Do you have a story? It's not much of a story. Uh-oh. It was on uh, it's on the top of can't remember the name of the hotel that overlooks the uh, old executive office building in uh, in DC. Uh huh. Yeah. So it's like right in the center of world power mm. um, on a uh, on a rooftop 
restaurant. Wow. Nice. That's hot. That's very romantic, wow. Toby. Listen, Kevin proposed to me at sunrise on a beach in the Dominican Republic, which was way better Ooh. than a fucking jumbotron at a wow. minor That's, league baseball game. Just, but it was videotaped from afar for the kiss cam. Was it? No, really? No, no, no. I didn't clear it with HR. Listen, Rachel and John, uh, we're behind you. Uh, we 100%. You, you better name one of your kids after one of us. Too late. And I will totally spend Toby's ad money to buy a plane ticket to come to your Toby's a proper British name for a child. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, romance aside, is it time to start our stupid podcast? It is. It's all downhill from here, folks. Okay. Leading off. I would just like to know why we had to go through what we went through. Why everything was so covered up, why I was lied to, why I was cheated. Those are questions that still pop up in my head all the time. In 1962, Lewis Petter founded a wilderness education facility for troubled students, promising parents a curriculum of hard work, discipline, and emotional counseling for their out-of-control adolescents. But the Annie Wakey Treatment Center was literally built on forced child labor and hit a pattern of sexual abuse. Then we started having some strong suspicions that, that things were awry and what we thought was going on in therapy was really not therapy at all. Despite accusations from staff, Petter's molestation of the boys in his care went on for decades. Georgia officials seemed either disinterested or powerless to revoke his license or put him in jail. If you've got the church and you've got the bureaucrats and you got the cops, you know, you can pretty much get things done. The new iHeartRadio podcast, Camp Hell, Annie Wakey, explores the sordid history of the education center sold to parents as a solution for their children's problems, but was actually a breeding ground for abuse. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from the first few episodes of Camp Hell, Annie Wakey. So if you want to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down review. Also, Toby works with many of the producers of this podcast on his own show, Strange Arrivals. So he will join our discussion, but will very fairly abstain from giving his thumbs up or thumbs down review. Good for you, Toby. That's very ethical. I, I try to be fair. <laughs> I, actually, uh, just to be full disclosure, like the people who worked on this are exactly the people who work on Strange Arrivals. <laughs> and the guy, the guy Josh Thane, who's the host, is a guy who makes you know, strange arrivals sound the way it does. Oh, like it sounds he's the, so good. Yeah. Listen, so I'm just going to say this before I say anything like potentially negative about Josh's podcast, like Josh, strange arrival sounds fucking incredible. You, you have do to listen in fact, with it. Yeah. Headphones. Two headphones. Yeah. It's stereophonic and it sounds amazing. Go ahead, yeah. Toby. Well, anyway, I was just going to say, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm friends with Josh and the other people who work on this. I, I know how much effort he's put into it. And, and things like that. So it's, you know, you'll hear like my, my critique and stuff, but I'm not going to pretend that I'm not friends with the guy and, uh, you know. But you told him I'm like, a dick, right? You told him that in advance? <laughs> I said, look, these other people are, are vicious. Yeah. Just ask Payne Lindsay. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, Payne and I are friends. I don't love his podcast, but I love him. Let's start where this podcast starts at the beginning. There's a really great like piece of tape and an anecdote at the beginning where we hear about this family adopting this donkey, which had been at Camp Annie Wakey and was obviously like an, a victim of animal abuse. I do believe animals remember. They remember good times. They remember pain. It's my opinion that 
those boys were doing to George what had been done to them or what was being done to them. And if that's the case, that is awful. Laura, what did you think of the opening scene of this podcast? I found it very affecting. Yeah, I found it like really compelling way to open because a lot of times when you're going into a true crime story, we're getting the, well, then I heard about the case and I just became fascinated with it. But we actually have Josh talking about a connection to somebody he knew and then she told him about this camp and then there's the story of, well, then there's the donkey. And I guess one of the things that always really hits me really hard when I hear it described as any kind of cruelty to animals is just... It's it's really hard to stomach and listen to. And hearing that put in the context of that the boys were doing to the donkey probably what had been done to them. And that once they realized that, they kind of understood why this donkey behaved the way it did when it came to their farm. So I think it was a really, like, it kind of grabbed you from the beginning with this story. I wish we had heard more of Josh after this because I felt like this was his kind of personal connection to why he was telling this story. And that sort of faded off after the donkey story. But I felt like, first of all, I want to kick the shit out of the people who were doing all of this because I was so angry hearing about all of it. But, you know, I thought it really was something that opened in a way that drew you into the story immediately. Kevin? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think starting off with the donkey story was a little bit of a risk. But it really was an attention grabber. We talk a lot about when you, it's hard to decide in what order to tell victim stories when you have multiple victims and and how it works sort of narratively and how that's different maybe from making a, you know, a legal argument or a victim impact statement in court when you're talking about being a storyteller. How much and who comes first and all this other stuff is a consideration. So how does this case of animal abuse fit into this story? All these children being sexually abused. I think if you had saved it for episode five, it would just be kind of weird mm. and almost like, well, why are we here? To start with this, it's it's kind of bizarre, right? So it does sort of grab your attention like, well, what is this weird case going to be about? Mm. If they've rescued a donkey because it's been abused physically and sexually, well, man, this has got to be a really bad situation. So now I'm curious about, well, what kind of situation is this? So I think that even though it's, you know, it's it's a little unorthodox, I thought that was, you know, the right choice to go with that story because I don't really think it's probably going to fit anywhere else. Yeah. So, Toby, after this opening anecdote, which definitely sets up like kind of a grim story, we're going to be hearing about a lot of bad stuff. Our first subject and, you know, the voice we get in the first episode talking about Annie Wakey is an early student who was sent there. Student, of course, being in quotey quotes, because we later hear that there's not much schooling happening who we hear about the schedule of the curriculum there. They're getting up in the morning, they're working all morning, they're having lunch, working all afternoon stuff. But ultimately, he really ends up defending the program and defending his experience there and saying that any sex he saw there was consensual. I asked Dale if he considers the work he was doing at such a young age as a form of child labor. No, because we were, we were learning to be responsible adults. It taught me a lot for the future. It taught me a lot. I'm curious what you think about kind of starting the story with somebody who can give us that much insight, but ultimately isn't on the side of like, this was bad. What did you think about his voice being like the opening voice in the podcast? Yeah, well, I think the the two choices that he makes at the beginning are to show the show the trauma and the bad stuff that's happening through 
the like real life metaphor of I think it's George the donkey, and then to talk about Annie Wakey in a way that kind of shows you like how kind of messed up things were even without the abuse and and having somebody who had what they would consider to be you know a relatively positive experience there so i think that first episode did an interesting thing in how it introduces the topic right is that it introduces the idea of the of the trauma sort of like a metaphor and then talks about the place in which it happened in a way that you know you're not hearing from a victim right off the bat like you're kind of getting the lay of the land from somebody it gives you kind of a, a relatively objective idea about what went on there, you know, when things were going right. And then so when you get to the other stuff and you've got people talking about, you know, the abuse they suffered and things like that, like you've, you've got all this context and you've also got somebody, you know, who's in the corner of the camp, more or less. And then what he's describing is still like, oh, shit, like, would you send your kid there? Like, I don't I don't think so. It's like that book Holes is what it reminded me of. Remember that book? <laughs> yeah, it's just, it, it sounds horrendous. <laughs> well, Toby, can you just talk about that a little bit? Because, you know, I know that Laura and I probably have opinions about this because we both have, I, I don't want to like speak for Laura, but I know that I've been in a situation as a parent where I'm like, I will do anything <laughs> to help me get through this situation with my kid. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm being sexist, Laura, because I know you also have a, a teenage boy, but Toby, can you just talk about like what we hear about the structure of this program and whether or not you think in any way in 2021 hearing about this? Because by the way, there are still lots of programs like this. We've talked about this before in the podcast, wilderness programs that are not not necessarily well-intentioned, that have these sort of like weird structures. What did you think about the structure we heard of, of this particular camp? <laughs> well, it sounds like somebody heard about like sort of experiential education and figured they could combine that with like unpaid labor. Yeah. And uh, this is what they came up with was a no cost work gang that (laughs) wasn't going to unionize on them. And, uh, you know, they could just kind of work into the ground. And then you find out kind of later about sort of these stratifications that they put in place about like the school kids and the work kids. And they put kids into buckets, right? About Mm -hmm. what they're sort of possible outcomes could be, I guess, or at least that's the way they're trying to put it. It's like, you're you're a kid who could do school. No, you can't. Like, you're just a manual laborer. So it's kind of just insidious on the, on the face of it. And I don't, you know, it's kind of hard to separate that from the fact that this guy is just a mass pedophile and is all these other things going on. But you wonder if he took a look at this and was like, this is an awesome model for me to get a lot of work done cheap. Or whether in some weird part of his brain, it's like, well, this will actually help the kids if they're forced to do incredible amounts of manual labor. Like maybe they'll learn some self-esteem or, or whatever and come out of it with some confidence. Uh, but it seems insane to me. Like if you if somebody gives you the actual story about what happens there, like who the hell would send their kid there? It's it's crazy. You know what builds self-esteem, son? Sheet rocking. <laughs> there you go. Laura, what did you think when you heard just about the description of this program? I found, I found the part about the school thing so fascinating because you could earn your way, quote, into the school, but then the school was so shitty because you were so far behind that you'd be like three years behind your peers and there's just no way you could go to like a regular public school. Like You'd mm-hmm. have to go in as a freshman when you were 19 years old because you hadn't actually learned anything. What did you think just about the description of the structure of this program? 
Well, it seems crazy now when we hear something like this. I think what I found interesting listening to it's it not. was... There are still things like this. I know this because <laughs> I have looked it no, up. No, there are because I've looked them up. But I think one of the things that struck me when listening to it is just that parents, even when these allegations came out, were like totally cool with keeping their kids there. And when, you know, more information was coming out and, and even the way that it was set up, like, well, your kids are going to come home. And they're going to tell you all this horrible stuff. But that's just part of the process, and it's not true. So they were being conditioned already to, you know, disbelieve their children and not buy into what was actually happening there. You know, anytime we hear about these situations, I'm just always struck by the people that continue to support them by enrolling their kids there or sending their kids there or thinking this is going to be an option, especially when you know, stories come to light that maybe lead you to believe that this might not really be a great place to be. And it costs a lot of money. Yeah. My question was like, what was the money paying for? I mean, it was paying for staff, obviously, but like certainly wasn't paying for like room and board because they had to like make it, right? Or like a new leg for the guy. I mean, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, what did you think about these early voices? I mean, we have the early student that we talked about who, you know, just talks about his generally positive experience and it did build character for him. Mm-hmm. But then in episode two, we make the turn and we hear from like two men who worked there who saw the problems and tried to do something. I'm just curious what you think about these early voices in the podcast. Yeah, I mean, as far as the former student, it's uh, it's interesting because... I mean, we know that for people of that generation, if they were victimized as when they were young, it's not uncommon for them to not talk about it, right? And and if confronted, we'll just, just deny it because that's sort of – not a lot of people were talking about that then. And so to say, well, this was going on and he said, I didn't see any of it and – you know, everything I saw was consensual. Yeah, you know, part which of doesn't me, mean it's not abuse, by the way. Right. You know, part of me is, I, well, I don't know. I mean, I can't. You can't say that he's lying. Like oh, I was, I was a victim, but I'm just not going to admit that. The only thing that sort of tips me is that if he said he went to Doc and confronted him about this, and Doc denied it, whatever. If he had to go and confront him, there was some doubt in his mind. If he had known and believed that, then he there would be no need for him to go because he would just know it was true. But I mean, but you know, he's somebody who wants to put a, a positive spin on his time on that time there. That's fine. The other two guys, and these really were the two guys that you know were the first whistleblowers that said, "Yeah, this is this is not right." And they were, I think, pretty candid about sort of, you know, it wasn't like they suspected something and then ten minutes later they, you know, the police were there. You know, they had to kind of. You know, come to turn like, yeah, I'm actually seeing this, you know, like why and not like convince themselves. But again, like these mandatory reporting laws, they weren't around the idea that this could happen. Uh, a lot of people just the system wasn't built for this, you know, yeah. not at that time. So. You know, what? it reminded me a lot of like what you hear about, like the, the Catholic church abuse stories, because right. the guy, especially the guy who had like the psychology background. His response was, I see abuse. You can't come anywhere near my group of kids. You're not allowed to have any contact with my kids. I see the abuse, but I'm going to protect my kids from you. The reflexive response wasn't, I'm going to the cops, like immediately, right? The reflexive response was, this is a thing. But when you say something like, like, you can't have contact with my kids, don't go into the shower because my kid is in there. But like, it's sort of tacitly saying like, 
whatever you do with your own kids, I can't do anything about it, mm. which is very much like with the Catholic Church sex abuse scandal is it was like and the dynamics like in prep school stuff. It's like we know it's happening. It's a thing. I can only do what I can do to protect the kids that I know and have contact with and all the other ones. Oh, it's terrible. But I can only do what I can do. It's kind of like it had to be happening to him. It's like he didn't feel he could go someplace else outside of his little bubble to make the confrontation. Right. It had to come to him. Right. But there were also sort of, Toby, like levels of, not complicity, but sort of levels of knowledge of the abuse. And then, you know, we hear one of the sources here talking about how he's fully aware, his colleague is fully aware, there's another colleague who's also aware who doesn't seem interested in doing anything. Like, what do you think about those dynamics? I know saying it's a different time doesn't matter. Child abuse is child abuse. But doesn't it speak to sort of the culture that helps these things stay under the radar for so long? Yeah, I guess there's there's degrees of complicity. And, and part of it is, I see it, I acknowledge what's going on, but I don't, you know, have the wherewithal or desire or willing to like put myself out there to do something about it. And then there's the people who are like, well, I guess that sucks for them. Um, I, I think the lack of empathy maybe or, or, or whatever. So, and, and I think that that's probably the case in like most large institutions that have things like this, right? Is so there's different people who know different amounts of things and then either do something or not for different reasons. And sometimes that has to do with how much self-preservation or, or, or lack of it or how much empathy or lack of it, or even like how, how much you feel like it is abuse. Like people are like, well, you know, it's consensual. So maybe like, who can talk themselves into that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I will say, just for the record, you can't use the term sexual relations between an adult and a child. You can't. Correct. It's yeah, abuse. Right. Yeah. Even if the child thinks they want to do it, it is abuse, period. Like, that is a thing, and that's, that seems to sort of be, like, how a lot of these things are framed, uh, you know, in the in the court records. And, you know, it's like the sexual relations. It's not what it is. Just period. It's just not what it is. There can't be consent in that. No, no. This is like before Masters and Johnson. Right. And so about our understanding in the mainstream culture about what healthy sex is, is not there. So all you have to do is say, I'm a psychologist or I'm an expert in this. And you have I've diagnosed you with homosexual fear. Homosexual like, what, fear. What the fuck Jesus is that? Jesus fucking Christ. Oh, okay. That sounds scary. Oh, my God. And this is the treatment for it. And uh, By the way, Masters and Johnson are not the paragon you want to put up there. And there's you know, like some well, conversion therapy bullshit there. Yeah, their, their views on homosexuality are, are, are uh, uh, not great. troublesome, but I mean- they're pioneers in, uh, in sexual They're pioneers research. in orgasms, yes. Yeah. I get it. Uh, so, Laura, let's talk about Dr. Petter himself, because mm-hmm. we do hear some transcripts, which we will talk about in a second, the use of transcripts in this podcast. But I thought it was very revealing hearing the transcript of him testifying in this hearing about whether or not the camp should be licensed, where he says things like... Listen, when you do this kind of work, people accuse you of stuff. If you talk to women who do this kind of work, patients accuse them of being lesbians. If you talk to any prison guard, those people are always accused. Like, he basically does this thing where, like, this is normal to be accused of being a rapist. Like, Mm -hmm. what did you think of his affect and just hearing those words, even though we didn't hear him say them? They were very telling, right? Yeah, I think, you know, in listening to him. I mean, and and obviously it's a totally different scenario, but one of the things that came to mind is when we were just talking about John Wayne Gacy and how he had connections and he was involved in local politics and he was able to like come across as this good guy. And I felt like the same 
sort of situation is happening here with Dr. Petter in that he's got, you know, everybody likes him. He's got connections. He maintains those connections. He makes relationships with people that he's worked with, people in different areas of government, people involved in county politics and everything. So it's like same sort of setting it up in a way that there's, you know, this inclination to disbelieve anything that is brought against him because he's so good at spinning the situation around him in his favor because he's so personable. So, like, those are the people that are so hard to catch Hmm. because you don't want to believe that somebody like that could be doing something like this. And they're telling you, oh, this is normal. So, you know, I think he was a really interesting character in that regard. Now, Kevin, this podcast starts, we hear a lot of tape, a lot of Uh interviews, and then halfway through the second episode into the third episode and the fourth episode, it really becomes a courtroom reenactment podcast. It changes, right? Yeah, I feel like it's two different podcasts, and I feel like this is kind of where it's starting to lose its way was with these court reenactments. Now, reenactments, I think, are a necessary evil when you're dealing with historical materials for a podcast. You can't show a lot of photos. Uh, You know, I wish we didn't have to use them, but we do when we use them. We should probably be using them sparingly. So when we had half of episode three be this reconstruction on a a hearing. um, And then all of episode four. Yeah. Well, when I'm done with episode three, I'm like, okay, that's that's fine. I'm going to find out all of episode four is going to be the same. Look, I don't think that this really adds any suspense to it or we learn anything. We already know that he's not going to jail, right? So I think that this might be a case of the creators falling in love with their research material. They find these transcripts to be really fascinating. Uh, I think that it certainly could have been pared down. I would have rather seen one longer or better one consolidated and more tightly edited selection episode of actors reading court transcripts as opposed to two full ones or essentially two full ones. I just felt like we've gotten away from what was working before, which was talking to the people who were there and had points of view in a very methodical uh, way of just getting it out there. So I'm not crazy about What's going on with that and some of the actors, a uh, little foghorn leghorn. You think? That's... We would object to his asking that. The proper foundation hasn't been laid to ask a question of Dr. Petta. In fact, Dr. Petta is not the man on trial in these charges. How do you say, sir? Sir, how do you say? How dare you? Laura, the thing that I kept thinking about was like the difference between writing a book and doing a podcast, right? Mm -hmm. So if you write a book, you can take a courtroom scene and the things people said and you can turn them into living scenes on a page. But when you have audio and you don't have those people giving interviews, like we actually haven't heard up to this point from a single victim of the camp. I mean, we heard from the first yeah, source. Not yet. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, we get the promise of, oh, things changed when victims started coming forward. And then we don't actually hear from victims. We only hear that victims signed affidavits and then we hear court recreations of those mm-hmm. victims' voices. And there's a lot of material there. But to me, it falls very flat, like in a different way than you'd read it on a page. Like it falls very flat in audio. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Because what I was thinking as I was listening to this, and, and I know you guys have gone through the same thing, is when you are writing nonfiction and you get your hands on court transcripts, that is not cheap. And you are going to maximize mm-hmm. the use of those court. Well, if it's me, 
the cheap New Englander, you're going to maximize the use of those court transcripts. It's either not cheap or it takes a long time to read. It's one of those yes. two things or both. Yes. So, you know, A, it's expensive. It's like usually like $2 a page or a dollar, whatever. And it's like 20,000 pages. Whatever it is, it's crazy. So I could see, like Kevin was saying, you kind of fall into this, oh my gosh, I have this material. There's so much good information here. I want to use it. I guess I wish it had been parceled out in a different way so that we still get the information without the guy who sounded like Chris Rock, one of the guys, didn't he? Yeah, the, the accents were a little strange. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Reenactments. So, but it's it's hard because when you are doing that type of research and you get your hands on something like a huge chunk of court transcripts and court paperwork, you want to use that because sometimes it takes a while to get your hands on it. But when you're writing... What I did anyway, and I'm sure you guys, like you can take the court transcripts and you can take the information and instead of writing it like it happened in court, you can then just recreate the actual scene where it happened. It's like a chapter in your book. Not what they testified to, but what happened. So instead of that, you'd be like, you'd write the scene based on the information you had, not like testimony. And so that's how I did it. But... It's hard because I don't know how you do that in audio. I mean, you, you can't if you don't have the interviews. It's really hard. Yeah. So so it's kind of a quandary. Well, like we were talking about with the line, what Dan Taberski did, is that instead of it being him on the outside and just sort of introducing the next segment, the next segment, the next clip from the, the court, that he used all the, the audio tape from that court martial. He's telling his story, and those audio elements are supporting his storytelling. Instead of, like we've seen before and I think is done here, is that as the narrator, he's just interjecting in between large scenes here and not, it's like, who's who's driving the narrative? Is it this recreation or is it the host? And I feel like he stepped back from that. And again, you know, the takeaways ought to be, okay, yes, uh, you know, they presented evidence that victim A here was molested. We didn't really have to go into whether it's triggering or not. I don't think we had to go into the detail that they went into, you know, for the case about what acts and whatnot. I think it's important in a legal sense, but in a podcast, I think we understand what's happening without it. You know, we're already on, you know, 40 minutes of 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 recreations and whatnot. So I think that, again, that all could have gone into sort of paring down, getting leaner and meaner, telling the story in a a tighter way that moves it forward, keeps it urgent and gets us back to what was working. All right. Well, I think we should do what we do, except for Toby. Let's let our (laughs) listeners know, should they check out Camp Annie Wakey? It's a new podcast from iHeartRadio. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for this podcast? Um, I'm going to go thumbs up, but it's not like a huge enthusiastic thumbs up. And I think probably it's because, honestly, the timing. Like, we just listened to a podcast about a very similar story about that place in California where the kids, like, escaped off the side of the mountain. So I guess going into this, thinking about that, I'm thinking, okay, so – and this sounds horrible. I don't mean it to sound like I'm not sensitive to these kinds of cases, but it's like, why this story? Why now? Because there are, I hate to say, there's so many of these cases and they're all so horrific, but it's like at some point, I feel like we need to maybe look at like the bigger picture of Mm. how to tie these into like maybe a bigger societal issue at that time. But I really liked the first half of this podcast. I felt like the second half for me, I wasn't super into the actors. 
um, that we're recreating courtroom scenes. But overall, I do think it's an interesting story. And I think if you lived in that area, I've seen in our Facebook group, people that grew up in that area, people know about this place. I mean, I saw somebody went to like a dance there in high school. So you would really be interested in listening to this podcast. Kevin Flynn. Yeah, I'm going to go thumbs up again, like Laura. Not a huge thumbs up. I liked how it started off. But where we are right now, as far as what we've heard, I'm not crazy where we've left it off. Um, I'm hoping that in the future episodes, they'll bring more of those voices in of people. uh, And maybe it's a chronological thing, because we've sort of started with people. We've heard people from the 60s and the 70s. Maybe as we get a little farther through, we'll hear different kinds of stories. But nevertheless, it's an important tale. It's a, you know, it's a very broad case, you know, crosses, you know, many years and many individuals. And so I think that, you know, they're on the right track here, but it's a little bit of a reservation. I'm hoping that they're going to be able to come around and land the plane. So thumbs up. Um, I can't give it a thumbs up. I'm going thumb sideways. Uh, I think the podcast has a lot of promise. I think it starts very strong, but what it sounds like to me is a story that is a story with only some sources and not all the sources. So instead of having the primary sources you need, you need, you know, people who were present for legal proceedings. You might need other people who went to the camp. If you have them, put them in the podcast. Don't use transcripts to set up the story. My other issue with all the courtroom stuff was that the proceedings we heard about were very low stakes proceedings. Insofar as they it wasn't a trial, it was a hearing about licensure and it was treated in the podcast. It was given the the time of like a criminal trial. And that's not what it was. And I don't know. There was just to me just some timing missteps. The other thing that I would say, um, you know, if I were in a room for an edit of this podcast, I would say if you're going to end episode two by saying, but all that changed when we heard from the victims And then you start episode three and you don't hear from any of those voices or any of those things until the end. Like you have to promise what you're going to say you're going to do. You have to do it like right away. And I I just think there's too much setup, and the payoff is too soft and all the strong voices are front loaded at the beginning. And I just I'm not sure that they had enough to actually launch this as a podcast series with the tape and the reporting they had. The information is great. I feel like the structure is all there but they don't have the supporting material to actually make the rest of the episode sound as good as the first couple. So I got to go with them sideways. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 5. South Dakota seemed like the perfect place to unplug. But I ended up connecting to the world around me. A world where each sunset was painted. Where I felt adventures pulse with every step. And where cold water trickling, pine swaying, and grunting bison became my favorite soundtracks. I just wish I didn't have to leave. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. Moving on. Kevin, we are in the business section of our podcast. Business section. What is going on on our Patreon today, Kevin? All right. Did I tell you we have over 200 podcasts? 
On our That's Patreon? On Patreon, yeah. Very exciting. This is going to be episode 101 of wow. the Crime Writers on After Show. Incredible. And uh, we're going to be getting a lesson in our After Show podcast. From, from a lesson? Like a real lesson? Like a real lesson. We have uh, one of our favorite listeners, Suzanne Serretta. Yes. Is an actress, and she specializes in accents. She's a linguist. Yes. And so uh, we're going to learn that Philly accent that yes. is so prevalent in Mayor of Easttown. We will say we met Suzanne. We went to Montreal a couple years ago. She's a professional linguist who coaches actors and professionals on either acquiring or getting rid of accents. Yeah. And, and she was on Law and Order, by the she's way. She's brilliant. Yeah. She can tell. She can. She's, she's brilliant. I'm so excited to talk with her. Should be fun. Also, we have uh, in the feed Married with Podcast. Among the different stories that we talk about is a friend who suppresses his violent thoughts by saying, meow. Yes. <laughs> it's we not also me. Have, we no, also have a Lara. woman whose uh, father-in-law bought her the wrong baby monitor from registry, and she was fucking pissed about it, and I'm totally on her side. <laughs> yeah. Now Rebecca thinks that he's going to like get in the way of whether or not babies should be circumcised because he's a big powerful man yeah. <laughs> I just think he's a stupid guy he said oh baby monitor here it is good for me also we're going to announce soon how uh, if you do have not signed up for Patreon how you can listen to our Patreon for free for two weeks <gasps> like HBO oh my does God. like HBO does we're doing like a little like window into our behind the curtain situation yeah yeah we'll tell you more about that coming up all right. So, Kevin, uh, before we move on to the second half of the show, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are Cindy Pestka and Tony Baker. Tony with an I. Bless you. Kevin, one quick thing before we go back to the show. Yeah. You got to sell the newsletter. It's free. You have to pay for it on Patreon. Can't it's sell free. It. I'm just giving it away. Tell people how to get our amazing newsletter. Go to crimewriterson.com right at the top of the page. Put your email in and we'll send you every week the latest newsletter that has behind the scenes. You can see photos of the cat of the week, things that are upcoming. It's just a great way to hear from us. An incredible journalist that we know. He used to work with Sarah Koenig at the Concord Monitor, mm-hmm. who is now a journalism professor at Northeastern and has started an outlet here in New Hampshire called the New Hampshire Bulletin. She's a genius. Meg Heckman tweeted. You know what she's most famous for? Yes. Radio Free Dystopia. Yes. She is going okay. to use, Kevin, your Crime Writers on Newsletter in her journalism class as an example of how you should engage with your audience with your content through a newsletter. That is how good our newsletter is, Kevin. Congratulations. So if you want to get on the academic newsletter, CrimeWritersOn.com. <laughs> and thus ends the business section. The business section. Moving on. What do you do, Mayor? Uh, I'm a detective. A detective? Mm-hmm. You don't have any bodies hidden under your porch, do you? Uh, not yet, no. But, you know, I've only been here since September. So. Mayor Sheehan went from high school basketball star to police detective in Easttown, Pennsylvania. Her relationships with her mother, daughter, ex-husband, and grandson are all very complicated, and she's still dogged by the unsolved disappearance of her estranged friend's daughter. They want a fresh set of eyes on this man. No, 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 no. I don't need some county shithead coming in on my they're case. They're getting pressured, Mayor. Oh, come on. And because they're getting pressured, I'm getting pressured. Come on. You know how this shit goes. 
When a young mother is murdered, Mare is reluctantly teamed with a county detective to crack the case. The investigation threatens to upend her tiny hometown and destroy her career and personal life. Lawyer, I said I want a fucking lawyer. Are you deaf? It'll go on your permanent record. So. Hey, Sarge. Anytime. Sarge. Apply for jobs. Sarge, that's enough. That's enough. You're a bitch, you know that? No wonder your son fucking killed himself. HBO's murder drama, Mayor of Easttown, features an all-star cast headed by my favorite actress, Kate Winslet. The limited series explores the dark side of a close community and examines how family and past tragedies can define our present. We are going to be talking about significant plot points from the first few episodes of Mayor of Easttown. So to remain completely spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs-up or thumbs-down review. Kevin Flynn. Yes. Is Easttown not the most fucking incestuous goddamn town <laughs> we've ever seen on television? Well, I, I don't know. that it's, It is... You know, I think they're trying to bring home the point that it's a small town when you're like, yeah, that's my cousin. And, and that's sort of part of the character. It kind of reminds me of Scandi Noir in the sense that, no, it's not, uh, you know, Iceland or anything like that. But it's bleak. Well, <laughs> one of the characteristics of Scandi Noir is that they use the setting and, you know, the the fact that, yeah, it may be somewhat secluded or bleak or you know, that uh, life is difficult and not everybody is glamorous and like all that sort of envelops the characters and the action. And we have seen that in some American shows like The Killing, which we were talking about recently. And I kind of feel like this is, I don't know if you want to call it Delaware County noir or, or you know, uh, backcountry noir or whatever, but it certainly, you know, has the feel that that's kind of like the tone that they're setting up. They're setting it up with cinematography, with the scenery and you know, that that's our starting point. Now, Laura, pretty much every trope we've ever complained about in any cop thing we've ever watched is present in Mayor of Easttown. You've got like the dogged, ragged cop. You've got like sort of the case that's always haunted. You've got all the things. However, they add a lot of local scenery, obviously incredible acting by Literally my favorite actress in the world, Kate Winslet, and all the rest of the cast, including the amazing Jean Smart. But let's just talk about the setting and the relationships and the details they use in the show to convey those things. What do you think about that stuff? Yeah, well, I think to just go quickly back to what Kevin was saying, and it ties into this, when I was watching this, even though it's not a crime story, it reminds me of like The Perfect Storm, which really captured that like blue-collar, working-class culture and lifestyle in Gloucester, Massachusetts, which is kind of the same thing. You're seeing people probably not drinking Rolling Rock, maybe drinking PBR or, you know, Toby, Budweiser. your thoughts about the beer choices, right? <laughs> uh, I, have, I have thoughts. <laughs> we'll go to you next. Um, but I feel like the way they're setting this up, we really have, you know, these two big themes. And one of them is really like the ties in the community. And the ties with the women who played basketball together in high school. And they're all still there in the community. And some of them have remained close. Others not so close. But those ties are, they're not going away. I mean, you see people that have this history. And then you have, on the flip side, the missing girls. And I guess watching it, I can't help but thinking that the overall theme, I hope, at the end is going to be how even when you have those sort of ties and community connections and that history with these people and these relationships, 
that you're missing signs that somebody around you is taking girls and sticking them in a freezer somewhere. Hmm. Um, but I know I think I, I liked how they set it up because it, it did. It felt very authentic to me. It, it felt very authentic. And I felt like I've been to communities like this. I can recognize these people. They feel like real people to me. So, Chubby, I talked a second ago about the many, many tropes of the show. And I kept thinking about you when I was watching this because taking my hand a little bit, it has all the things I usually hate. But it's completely different than all the things I usually hate in many other ways. What do you think of these details that they infuse into this very, very typical cop story? Do you think those details work? And what do you think of the beer choices? So first about the beer. Um, <laughs> like everybody either drinks Rolling Rock or Yangling, which yeah. is fine. It's very Pennsylvania. No, and the women drink Rolling Rock. I tried to and spend... And the men drink the... When, Have you when noticed did this? you yeah. last drink yeah. a Rolling Rock, Toby? Well, I stopped because I don't really like it. I like, like Yangling. high school. I had a roommate when I lived in D.C. who went to um, Dickinson. And so he would go on these road trips and come back with like 20 cases of Yangling. And he'd be like, what do you want? And oh, it's potato so, chips, right? And so was, I was like, okay, <laughs> give me some black and tans and get me some lagers. And, and so we just had like an incredible amount of Yangling all the time. So I was trying to watch and see if there was some kind of thematic thing uh, with like who was drinking. Like, can we trust the people who drink Yangling? Or is that mm. like, is that so? But I don't think there's anything there. Um, but I think I struggled with this show a little bit because I enjoyed it. And I think the writing is good. But my God, they hit every single freaking thing and the only twist is instead of it being a guy it's it's kate winslet so it's like the sports star who's like peaked in high school and now is a cop in the same town but what people really remember them for is their sports glory well it's kate winslet and you know the person who put their job in front of their family it's kate winslet and it's just like thing after thing. There's like a dead, you know, a dead girl, a pedophile priest. It's like thing after thing after thing. And it's like, okay, well, what is keeping this from just being horrible? And it's really good acting. Scenes. There's really good scenes, too. There's really good scenes. So it kind of gets to that, like, can you get really good writers and really good actors to do a show that's really just a bunch of things that you've seen before so much that it's, you know, I just, I, I didn't know what to make of it. Uh, although I enjoyed it. There's one thing, Toby, that I will say that to me added like a layer to this that transcended. And it's her relationship with Freddie, the brother of her high school friend who has substance use issues, who's like breaking into houses, oh, who yeah. then she mm, right. goes into his house and arrests him. And I just found that stuff. I mean, to me, it grounded it in like 2021 in a way, because they're really speaking to sort of like the blight of opioid addiction in rural America. Yeah. And it also just sort of, to me, showed and we have a debate going about this in our Facebook group right now about the name of the show, Mayor of Easttown, whether or not it's a play on words like Mayor of Easttown. I'm like, it yes, it is. is. Yeah. It is because she's like the mayor in a scene like that, right? She's not just the downtrodden cop. She's also really running the show. To me, that's what... He, and he's not really the king of queens, right? It's just <laughs> it's just a clever title. I'm just saying. Yeah, so I think I, I, I wrote you a note that I said I thought... You know, this is a very like of the moment show. Mm, like usually yeah. those things are like the most cutting edge technology or, or whatever. Mm. But in this case, it's really like what is the plight of these kind of poor Rust Belt communities? And and it's, you know, it's unfortunately it's it's a lot of it's opioids. Mm. 
Kevin, what do you think about the visuals of the show? Because it's definitely doing a lot with, first of all, every single set, every single house looks like a real house, a real like yeah. regular split level with Afghans on the couch, not like a like a fake Roseanne Connor split level, but like a real one. Um, and there's just like a lot of interesting stuff with camera work. With But can we talk about the way maybe the actors are? That I think I read something that Kate Winslet had like a demand that everybody has bedhead. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's unglamorous, or as we call it, real life. Mm-hmm. And so they're not, everyone's not all dolled up. And, you know, not everybody looks like they just came from the gym or just came from uh, Saks Fifth Avenue. While that is completely normal, that it's, it just sets itself apart from everything that's on television that's dusted with gold dust. So everything looks wonderful. Um, you know, I know. I guess that's how you get tagged with having give given a brave, gritty performance hmm. by you know not wearing a lot of makeup. So I think she's transcending yay, that. Hollywood. I think she's transcending that. Oh, I think she is. This I'm, isn't I'm, like, I'm just ma- I'm just giving a wink to the patriarchy there. Yeah, this isn't like um, what's her face in Monster. You know, it's not like that. It's not like an extreme. It's just it's not an extreme. It's, no, like, no, it's, not it's an ex- like in yeah. British crime shows. They all look like normal people. Yes. Exactly. Yes. And and I'm like, hey, look, they're normal people. And they have- Makes them more relatable. Normal people, by the makes way. Them, makes them more vulnerable. Yeah, and but, I think that's what we have here is a character that we want to see as vulnerable. But still fuckable. I mean, <laughs> For like, a grandma. let's be real. You, Kate Winslet is still Kate Winslet. Even I fucked when that she's, grandma. Oh, Kevin. <laughs> Jesus, Kevin. Wow. <laughs> but, like I- She said, do I fuck like a grandma? But like, for instance, yeah, she did say that. You don't have to rush off. You can't stay. You know? Oh, that's- that's okay. I have to take my grandson to school tomorrow. Your grandma? Did I stop like a grandma? Oh, a very hot grandma. For instance, Laura, like the guy Pierce is like the visiting professor guy. Yeah. For some reason, like, it works, even though on the one hand, you're like, why would this visiting professor guy, like, want to be with this woman who has, like, eight inches of roots? But at the same time, you realize it's also Kate Winslet. And she is smart. She's super articulate. She's super interesting. Like... It's believable, even though it's not. If it's you know what I mean, because he's the killer. He looks Rebecca. Kind of, he looks kind killer. of shitty too. Let's you think be he's the killer? I know I he's, he's the killer. He was out with her when the murder happened. He can't be the killer. They were in Syracuse. No, he just came down from Syracuse. I don't know. <laughs> Likely story. <laughs> but like, there is a romantic storyline here, Laura. What do you think about that? Well, we've got like three romantic storylines. You know, we've got the professor. We've got the ex-husband, Frank, who I hate. And we've got the little detective guy who got really drunk one night and was like, oh, and then like legit asked her out on a date. And I was like, oh, that's kind of sweet. So, um, you know. And her daughter. Her daughter's got a very yeah. Yes. Don't forget that. Yeah. Hot story. A daughter is so great. Yeah. By the the way. daughter's got her cute new girlfriend. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I like having that added in again. It feels real. It feels like I mean, but it also feels kind of messy because it's like she's going out with the one guy and then the other guy asks her out and you've got the ex-husband. And obviously there's some complicated stuff there with their son who died and his new wife who just looks or the new fiance um, looks a little high maintenance. Oh, yeah. She's very difficult. Yeah. Toby, I did think, um, speaking of the daughter, who I just think is an incredible character and like really well cast. Siobhan. Siobhan. She's amazing. That there was a little scene where, you know, she hooks up with a girl at the college radio station in her basement and the ex-girlfriend kind of walks in. The result being that the door flies open and hits Gene Smart in the face. It's a total non sequitur in the show. Back up. Back up. Wait. Back up. (laughs) 
scenes like that are why I love the show. Does that make sense to you, Toby? Like that is unnecessary for the the story we're telling here. Maybe, maybe it comes into maybe like Jean Smart's nose doctor ends up being the killer. I don't yeah. know, but that's the stuff I find transcendent. Do you know what I mean? Um, I know that you feel that, that? way. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't like watching Jean Smart get hit in the face with a door, Toby? You know, I I just I've got such mixed feelings about this because I enjoy it. But on but, paper, you shouldn't, is what you're saying. But if saying. I think about it at all, I'm just like, like, what's the new idea? And hopefully that's what the ending is, is like something different. Um, I'm so afraid it won't be. I'm so afraid. Yeah, I, I'm me. worried about that, too. And then there's like this. So so here's the thing. Another thing that, that I kind of had, like, I don't know what you guys thought about the whole planning the heroin thing. Didn't like it. But Believed it, but didn't like it. That seems like a... a a not so great little twist or whatever. And then like it, it made it hard for me to find mayor likable mm-hmm. again, because I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's supposed to show her desperation and to show that she'll do whatever it takes to keep this family together, which she in other ways neglects. And that's kind of a complicated sentiment and stuff. But on the other hand, she's taking this kid who is like in recovery from opioid addiction and trying to set her up. Hmm. And that's, that seems a little bit beyond the pale. So, but can I just counter that for one second? Yeah. A worse show would let that storyline drag on and it would be in the background and it would unravel later. This show, she did it. She was caught immediately and her like it wasn't like a thing that we had to live with as viewers. Like it happened and it was over. The boss confronted her. Like I felt like it was handled differently than it would have been handled in a lesser show. But it basically sets up this whole thing like you're off the case, Johnson. You know, yeah. don't let me, yeah. don't let me, don't let me catch you sniffing around anymore. And uh, I you hope know, you so it's just another one of the many cliches. Part of me wants to make sure you never wear a badge again. Come on, Chief. I'm placing you on administrative leave. What? Story is, you're overworked. So, uh, Kevin, how worried are you about this show jumping the shark? And then we're going to do, by the way, a thing that we do. We're going to take bets. We're going to talk about who we think did it. That's what everyone else in America is doing. We're going to do it before we give our review. Okay, I'm really loving the show. I'm looking forward to it every week. Got to the end of episode four, and I thought, oh, shit, did this just jump the shark? When we find out that Kate... The missing girl is in the basement underneath some bar and has probably been there for a year and was there because, you know, some potential serial killer just brought in another kid. And I'm like, that is so not what this show emotionally has been about. Right. We've been thinking that that it's about, you know, who killed Aaron. Right. And look, maybe the whole thing like works out like they thought ahead, you know. Uh, okay, well, this long-term kidnapping works into it like this, but if it's a random serial killer who's behind this, it changes the mystery completely and the killer's relationship with the victim. We want to know who done it, but we also want to have a compelling reason why they did it. You know, it wasn't just, I just, well, yeah, I'm the neighbor, and I just decided to shoot Aaron. Uh, you know, that doesn't go. There's got to be some story and some kind of emotional payoff. If it's just, no, she was a random target to the serial killer, it changes the whole thing and why we care about Merrick solving the case. I feel like they've just come to a fork in the road that they've placed it there themselves, and I see where a lot of this shit, like, goes wrong, and I'm hoping they don't go there. All right. 
So before we give our review, can we each give our like speculative take? Maybe we'll put like 10 bucks on the table and whoever comes closest wins the 10 bucks at the end of the season. Laura Bricker, who do you think is do who do you think's behind all these crimes on Mary of Easttown? Well, so far I'm gonna go with hmm. I don't feel like anyone is really bubbling to the surface for me. And I think that's where I'm at right now is I I think that the professor guy's a little sketchy. I think the ex-husband's a little sketchy, but Ultimately, I think it's going to be somebody that we've seen that I haven't identified yet that is somebody that is closely tied to Mayor that she never recognized could be behind something like this. Okay. That's your prediction? It's very fucking I don't even know what the hell I was talking about. Why don't we give you like a quarter if you win? How about that? Tony, what do you think? Who did it? What do you think? I think it's the uh, I think it's Mayor's best friend's husband. Oh, I was just gonna say Julianne that. Nicholson's oh. husband, yeah. Lori's husband, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's Ooh. that was my guess too originally, but then I had another idea. See, it's got to be a we. There's usually a, a fair play agreement with the audience when you're doing a mystery, right? The agreement is we're gonna give you a chance to figure this out because there's a mystery here and we've moved some things around. And can you guess what we've done? We didn't get that in the Undoing. It was just the stupid. We kept thinking, oh, no, maybe it's actually the principal. It's not the guy they keep saying it is. Uh, so when you just drop somebody in at the end and like, oh, no, he was the killer, like the lawnmower guy. And Spoiler alert. Kid, still Spoiler worked alert. Out. That one still worked out well. It's just sort of like it just feels like you weren't playing fair with the audience. So I feel like we probably have already seen the of killer. We have. But if all of a sudden it's a serial killer driving a van collecting women, I'm like, well, who the fuck is that? Right. So I'm hoping it's Lori's husband, whatever his name is. Because it's just, it just right, he's just far enough in the background yep. that you could be like, oh, but not too front and obvious. Right. Like, yeah, it's, it's based purely on like plot dynamics, like not plot, on exactly. like clues. Yes. You know? I also, that was my first guess from yeah. episode two was Lori's husband. But no one thinks it's any of the priests. Huh? But. Travis Roy, our content assistance guy from the Law & Order podcast, said yeah. something on Facebook that got me thinking. What was that? He said he thinks there's actually two criminals here. There's the killer and then the serial kidnapper rape guy. I think it might be both of those fucking guys. Remember they both went to tell that guy his daughter was dead? The two cousins? Yeah. Lori's husband and the oh, other yeah. dude? One killed Aaron and, one, and then one's the serial They're killer? May, they may be working together. They may whatever. But it actually is two very different MOs, isn't it? Her crime seems very separate from keeping girls in the what basement. What if it was Aaron's father? Oh, I don't know. Well, I think Aaron's father is the father. That's what I mean. Ew. No, the that's who it baby? is. Because it's not, it's not the kid Dylan. I think that her dad. I think it, The creepy I, kid Dylan? No, I, you know, because. Oh, oh, that would be oh, a wait, good twist. Before we yeah. give our review, can we just all agree that Dylan and his asshole girlfriend are the two creepiest fucking people? Oh, I, I want to punch her in the face, too. Yeah. <laughs> Brianna, fuck her. Whatever happened to her dad who threw the brick through the window? <laughs> I don't know. The jug of milk. But what would you do, Toby, if either one of your kids came home with either one of those kids as their date? Would you not want to punch that other kid, like, immediately? I'm a little more accepting than you are. <laughs> 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 if my children are happy with their with their significant with others, their that's asshole, all that significant other who beats people yeah. up in the woods. Okay, well, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know: should they check out Mayor of Easttown? Yes, listener who is curious, it is a play on the words Mayor of Easttown. There's no fucking doubt about it. Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Mayor of Easttown? Yeah, this is a thumbs up. This is one of my favorite things that we've watched in a long time. In terms of something that I actually want to watch, like on my own. 
if we weren't actually doing it for homework. Um, I love the setting. I love Kate Winslet. I love the grittiness, the authenticity of the characters in this like very working class, interconnected community. It is kind of reminding me of that movie at the the last episode. What was that movie with Ashley Judd where they're like hiding the girls? Kiss the girls. Yeah. So I don't know if it's going to go that direction or not, but either way, it's something. And by the way, that gave birth to the best Saturday Night Live skit I have seen in so long. <laughs> Murder, dirter. Even Fireman Ken, I say it all the time, even Fireman Ken, but Ken was like, all week long, I'd be like, Ken, do you want to come up in my room of tranquility and, and watch a show with me? And he'd be like, is it Who Murdered My Dirter? And I'd be like, no. <laughs> I'm done watching Who Murdered My Dirter this week. I'm so. investigating a murder. So anyway, big thumbs up. Tell me, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down so far? Because I know how I know you. I know what you're going to say for Mayor of Easttown. What am I going to say? You're going to say, I don't know if I'm going to be able to give it a thumbs up or thumbs down until I see how it ends. But where are I, you today, Toby That's Ball? close. I was going to say, I'm worried about <laughs> what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I I can't give it a thumbs down because there's so much that's good in it. Um but, you know, it's got weak bones, man. I mean, it just, it's really, the construction of it is is not, the, the attention to detail and the kind of interesting stuff that pervades everything that's not the plot is excellent. Mm. The plot is run of the mill, hmm. in, in my opinion. I give it a thumbs up. I mean, I it's enjoyable, but it's one of those things where... I'm happier if I just turn it off and just don't think about it again until it comes back on again. Because the minute I start thinking about stuff that happened, I'm like, eh, I don't know. Hmm. So that's a, it's like a 75. It's a thumbs up. Kevin Flint. <laughs> I'm, I'm just calling it. It's a thumbs up. Kevin okay. Flint. I'm a thumbs up. I'm really enjoying the performance by Kate Winslet. She's really carrying the show. Yeah, Toby does make some good points that a lot of this we've seen before. It's not quite hackneyed but i think they're just kind of staying far enough ahead of it i i am worried about where we ended episode four by the time this drops we'll have seen episode five and i think all of us listening and talking about this we'll know then if it's staying on the right we're track talking about not. this again next week just fyi There's oh, okay. no fucking way we're not talking about this again next week okay so uh i'm a thumbs up i think folks should watch it Listen, sometimes shit is hackneyed, but it's transcendent and it's still really good. This is an example of that. Everything about this on paper should be terrible. It is great. It's my favorite show that I've watched in a very long time. Gene Smart, Kate Winslet, Rolling Rock, gritty Pennsylvania people. I love everything about it. Huge thumbs up for me so far. Although I will concede with Toby, it could change in the future for Mayor of Easttown. Huge thumbs up. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 5. South Dakota seemed like the perfect place to unplug. But I ended up connecting to the world around me. A world where each sunset was painted. Where I felt adventures pulse with every step. And where cold water trickling, pine swaying, and grunting bison became my favorite soundtracks. I just wish I didn't have to leave. There's so much South Dakota. 
so little time. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime, crime of, of the week. week. One is, in fact, the loneliest number. Multiple newspapers in India are reporting a bride jilted her would-be husband because he couldn't recite his multiplication tables at the altar. The groom had just completed the traditional barat in which he rode a decorated horse to the ceremony, accompanied by his singing family and friends. But before she agreed to exchange garlands to begin the nuptials, the bride gave him a pop quiz. Her family had grown suspicious of the groom's background and believed he was lying about his education. So she asked him to recite a table of two. Times table, right? Yeah. When he failed, the bride stormed out of the wedding, saying she couldn't marry someone who didn't know basic math. Her family backed her up. It was supposed to be an arranged marriage, and her relatives felt like they'd been cheated by their future in-laws. All the gifts have been returned. So, panel... Wait, this... so that's like uh, the table. That's like two, four, six, eight, ten. Yeah, it's that one. So, panel, this couple... the fives. <laughs> this couple like is... Five, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five, thirty, thirty. Remember school yes, on Friday? Yes, I do. Yeah. So, panel... Apple, peaches, pumpkin pie. Kevin... Who's not ready? Hot or eye. You're really hijacking the segment of the show. Sorry. This couple panel is facing a, quote, long division and will definitely not be multiplying. Oh. My question for you is, what test are you glad your spouse did not give you before your nuptials? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. This is pretty easy. Um, I'd say it's my crazy cat lady affinity test. (laughs) (laughs) Seeing as how Ken had one cat when I came here, and now we have three, and we have room for a few more. Yeah, I will say that you also failed that test when you started this podcast with us. Mm -hmm. Toybo, what about you? Uh, What test are you glad your spouse did not give you before your nuptials? I had a great answer for this, and I can't for the life of me remember what it was. I bet Deborah Uh, knows. Is it a memory test? (laughs) That could be. Uh, So I'm going to have to go with uh, being able to touch my toes. Okay, what about you, Kevin? It would have been, hey, Kevin, can you fold this fitted sheet? <laughs> That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. Oh, Kevin, can you put this duvet in the duvet cover? The yeah. what? Oh, no, he cannot. Every yeah. time. We've done it about 350 times. And every time, Kevin? Sing it. Feels like the first time. Yeah, That's right. Time. So, Kevin, I have two answers for you. Yeah. One, caring about baseball. That it's test. Fine. It would have been fine. Second test. My tolerance for someone who enjoys reading in the bathroom most of the time. Oh. <laughs> the only place a man can get any peace of quiet is house. <laughs> All you right, don't like need... people reading in the bathroom? As the default position? I don't know. All right. Uh, before we end the show, and we should have We're plotting. <laughs> Lar- I'm scheming in there. Kevin, man, <laughs> you should have known. Should have known. Murder, dirty, Lar Bricker. Before we end the show, do we have a cat of the week this week? <laughs> We do have a cat of the week this week from Catherine Cook. And Catherine writes, so our cat of the week is our very spoiled lilac Siamese. She only speaks French, insists on many petties, prefers 18th century impressionists. And when the Mother's Day bouquet arrived, which included foxglove, she loudly remarked in French, which I cannot speak. Translation, are you trying to kill me? And promptly knocked the flowers off of the table. To our astonishment, they found out that foxglove is poisonous to pets. We are now a roses-only household. So, yes, I love the cat. I love the pictures. I love that your cat knocked it over. And I use any opportunity to rhyme people. Foxglove, lilies. Lilies are very toxic. R.I.P. poor Stampy. And things like poinsettias. 
um, keep them away from the pets. So I love the cat that speaks French. I think my cats need to learn to speak something else. So um, thank you, Catherine. Laura Bricker, that cat doesn't actually speak French. Yes, you know it that, does. Right? Rebecca. All right, Laura Bricker. If people want to suggest their asshole cats to you to be pet of the week next week or any kind of animal, they can, of course, send us an email at crimewriterson at gmail.com. But if they want to tweet them to you, how can they find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you and say, hey, Toby, it's okay if Mayor of Easttown is hackneyed. It's still awesome. How can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball and H. And by the way, Toby, congratulations on the release of episode one and episode two of Strange Arrivals. It's so great. Yay. Thanks. Hey, Toby. Kevin Flynn, how can folks reach out to you on Twitter and say, what the hell happened to your hair? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On, and I encourage you to join our amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. You can find it by searching Crime Writers On on Facebook go to our regular page and hit join the group support the show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media you'll get the crime writers on after show right now plus married with podcast laura bricker's leave it to bricker podcast and toby ball's deep dive book club podcast our theme song was composed and performed by ty gibbons our line editor is the extremely handsome olivia burdett the executive producer of this program is kevin flynn this show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where we drink our water and eat our hoogies. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. Can we just talk about the, the moment that Gene Smart is having right now? Oh, my talk- God. She's a national treasure. A fucking national treasure. <laughs> Fruit Ninja. Rocky Road ice cream. Manhattans. She got hit in the face with a door. What's not to love? Gene Smart. Oh. The great grandma I'd want to fuck. She- oh, my God, Kevin. Oh, no. Oh, no. Kevin. Were you, were you waiting for, like, a four-foot blue the, dildo the, scene? Oh, Kevin? oh, like in Watchmen. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, no, no. But Toby, what did you... Watchmen. Go ahead, Laura. I'm just going to say, I'm going to take that trick because uh, you guys have teenage boys in the house. You know how it goes. So when I have ice cream, it disappears within, like, 20 minutes. I am totally putting it in the bag of frozen vegetables. Thank you, Gene mm. Smart. Yeah. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 7. My trip to South Dakota was the best summer ever. Now I don't need to go to Mars because I've been to the Badlands. And I caught a bigger walleye than Dad when we went to the Missouri River. Then I rode my bike through these huge rocks called needles. Ooh, I also saw my first herd of bison, even a fuzzy furry baby one. I can't wait to go back and see more. There's so much South Dakota, so little time.